Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting and fun episode of She Said, She Said. I am your co-host, Lena Stagg, and I am also the culinary chef and author of the Recipe Records Cookbook Series. It is a series of rock and roll cookbooks that are designed to put the beat in the kitchen. Thus far, there are four books in the series focusing on songs and music from the 50s all the way up through the 1990s. In each book, I give you fun and easy-to-follow recipes that are music-themed. For example, in my book, Recipe Records, A Culinary Tribute to the Beatles, one of the recipes is titled, I Am the Eggs Man, and it's a it's a delicious, delicious brunch recipe. Now, along with each recipe on the layout, I provide a bonus segment, some food for thought. And on this, at this recipe, I have a section that is titled, Everything I Need to Know I Learned from the Beatles. What are a few of those things that I learned from the Beatles, you ask? Number one, all you need is love. Number two, let it be. Number three, think for yourself. And number four, we can work it out. I also suggest the list of great music that you can enjoy as you cook. Recipe Records gives you all the ingredients you need for a party in the kitchen. So check all four of the books at my website, lanastag.com. And while you're there, sign up for my free newsletter. Okay, so I got to jump in here and say that I am a huge fan of recipe records. And so is my husband who loves to eat amazing food. And our tradition before the shutdown, and I'm going back into the grocery store now so we can reinstitute this, is that every Wednesday night was recipe records night. And so you pick out a recipe on Tuesday, you go shop, get your ingredients, which are always easy to find. It's nothing like haracha-cha of a smothered whatever. It's easy to find stuff. And you come back and then you get your listening device to play the song list that Lena recommends as you cook. And I'll show you what I mean. So you're in the kitchen and you're making, uh, let's see, Scouse by Dave Bedford. It's the original Liverpool Scouse. And so there's a playlist. And the first song on the playlist is All You Need Is Love. So you say, Alexa, play All You Need Is Love by the Beatles. Here's All You Need Is Love by the Beatles on Amazon Music. Alexa, stop. And that's how it goes. So you listen to all the great songs on the song list as you cook. She came up with this idea with her best friend, Maggie, years before there was a listening device. And so it was really hard to do because you had to make yourself a playlist and then bring in your tape player or whatever and do it. Now, it was so far ahead of its time and so very cool. You got to get recipe records. If you're a Stones person and you're not a Beatles person, first of all, shame on you. Second <laughs> of all, there is a book called The Rolling Guns, Let's Spend the Bite Together, her fourth book that has Stones recipes and music in it. So 
Go for it. You're going to love it. And who am I anyway? I am Lena's bestie and sidekick, Jude Sutherland Kessler. I'm surrounded, I guess you can see, by John Lennon because I am the author of the John Lennon series, which I've been researching, writing, and editing um, for the last 35 years, believe it or not. That's a long time to work on any project. And I've got like at least 20 years left to go to get it finished of hard work. But it tells John's story and the story, obviously, of the Beatles, since they're his friends and surrounded by, you know, him, them constantly um, in a story form. You read it like you're reading a narrative. But everything is so researched and so documented that you're getting what they said, what they wore. And John very frequently wears the same thing day after day after day for like five days. Uh, what they ate. In fact, there have been controversies about things that they ate in the book because when they were in Montreal, the guy that delivered their food said he delivered hamburgers and chips or fries to them. And another person wrote in and said, oh, no, I was back there and they had chicken. So, yeah, we get into the weeds on, <laughs> on what they ate, what they did, what they said, because people don't tell the same story, you know, and I'm sure we'll hear from our guests today that when people tell you what happened, they don't always tell the same story. So we really do get into the weeds. There are five books that are out. The latest one is Shades of Life, part one, which takes you through the first eight months, eight months of 1965. And they're 4,000 footnotes. So even though you're reading it like a story, you're getting the, the real story. And Lena was one of my incredible editors. And she can tell you it is a hard, it's a hard job putting all this stuff together. It's combining that format with facts. It is really, really tough. So we, um, I invite you to check out my website, as Lena said, and to visit every other month. I do a webinar called Focal Points. And coming up in June, I'm going to be doing one on the 1965 North American tour all through the spring. That's what we've been talking about. We went to Shea Stadium. We went to the Hollywood Bowl. And this time we're going to Houston as the Beatles play Houston. And I'm going to have the coolest person on. Her name is Catherine DeMoss at 16 years old from Spring Hill, Louisiana. You don't say Spring Hill. If you're from Louisiana, you got to say Spring Hill. She's from <laughs> Spring Hill. She came to the big city of Shreveport where I live. She got on the bus and she took the Greyhound bus at 16 years old by herself to Houston, got off got a taxi out to the Beatles Hotel and got to be a student reporter and go to their press conference and then get taken to the front row at the concert to see the concert. So she's going to, I get chill bumps talking about it. She's going to talk about her wonderful story and uh, what it was like to be there in 1965. So um, oh, lots of exciting things going on. I hope you'll join us for Focal Points in June. And Lena, we've got another thing, don't we? Absolutely. And I have to tell you, her Focal Points are so well done and so um, interesting. And you just keep wanting more when you watch them. So don't miss one episode of Focal Points. So Jude and I recently wrote, uh, we collaborated on a blog for the Fest for Beatles fans, it is found at thefest.com, I believe. And uh, Jude has been uh, working for the past year and a half or two on the songs from 
Rubber Soul, and um, she has guest authors that came in and wrote about each song. So she's getting ready to finish that up. So she and I collaborated on the this month's blog post, which is for George Harrison's song, If I Needed Someone. So check that out at thefest.com, especially if you're a George fan. I think you'll enjoy reading um, our analysis of If I Needed Someone. It was really fun to work on that. And we are excited about today. She said, she said, I mean to tell you, um, we we have a powerhouse duo with us who originally, and this is a long and winding road, they were scheduled to be on in October. And one beautiful, crisp October night, I went out running and my husband went out biking and he didn't show up. He circles me many times while I run because I run in the dark and uh, he didn't show up and he didn't show up and he didn't show up. And I finally came around the corner and thought what, what I saw was a Halloween decoration, like someone had done a decoration of a person on a bike who had had a terrible accident. In, and I thought, this is a bizarre Halloween decoration. It was no Halloween decoration. It was my husband. He had broken six bones. He was thrown off his bike. He was in the hospital for a week in the trauma unit and then came home and had to learn to walk again and went through physical therapy. So we that, that took up all of October, November. And then <clears throat> at the end of December, I got covid not once, but twice. So we have, we have postponed this show so many times. So we thank them for being with us. And um, we are going to, we were going to talk to them when we were doing our series on the psychedelic Beatles, because the topic today is the very artistic Beatles film, Yellow Submarine. So we, we wound up psychedelic Beatles, but there's never a bad time to talk about Yellow Submarine. Right, Lena? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to give us the scoop on the film's artists, directors, the artwork, and the theme are the authors of two amazing books on the movie. I have one of the books that we're going to talk about today right here. The first book came out 20 years ago and was entitled Inside the Yellow Submarine, The Making of the Beatles Classic. And the authors felt that the time, care, and attention to detail that they had given that book provided all you'd ever need to know about the film and the making of the film. But almost the moment the book was released, they started hearing from people who had worked on Yellow Submarine, but were not mentioned in the film's credit credits, and from some, some people who had additional information to share about the film's creation. That's kind of how it goes, isn't it, Jude, with, with uh, doing um, writing nonfiction. So over the next 19 years, our guests today began to gather that additional information into a second book entitled, It's All in the Mind, Inside the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. And Jude and I can't wait to learn even more about this magical film with our special guests, Laura Fortner and Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Welcome to She Said, She Said. Yay. Thank you for join, letting us join you. Can you we're, we're thrilled. You guys look amazing. Look oh, at you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for inviting us. You know, we've been following your work for years. 
Um, oh. Jude, did you know that we that you're in volume two? We use you as no. I did know that. We don't have four thousand questions, <laughs> but you are in one of them. Um, I think it was in the the explanation of Donovan adding a line to the song. Of oh, guy oh. in the blue and sea of green. That's the little line that he added. And I am so excited. That's great. To, to stand up for that. So that's that's where your name comes up. It was some, yeah. something for the Fest for Beatles fans, in fact. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's great. Well, before we start the conversation with our special guests, we would like to um, have a little announcement or disclaimer. Um, if you're listening to this podcast in the archives, Bob and Laura would, would like for me to ask you to stop the podcast right now and go watch the film Yellow Submarine again, especially if it's been quite a few years since you viewed it, which it has for me. Watching the film will really make this discussion that follows come to life and then come back and join us for the remainder of our lively discussion of the film and the filmmakers. Or if you can't do that, Try to watch the film again after this podcast. We think it will take a whole new meaning on for you. It will. It's a 50-year-old film. Not everybody is watching it as obsessively as we are. So I like to make sure it's a good thing to watch at any time. Like you said, Jude, it's good to talk about it at any time. But it's a good film for any time. It just has, it's, here we are talking about it, right? 50 years later. It's held up really well. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, it's an it's a artistic wonder, actually. Yeah. So before we dive into the history and the details of the Yellow Submarine film, you two had the distinct pleasure of working with and really getting to know Sir George Martin, whom you refer to as the Quiet Trailblazer, and Lady Judy Martin, up close and personal. So tell us about them, if you don't mind, from your perspective, what was it like to work with them so closely on a mammoth project such as this? Well, it came about by our interviewing Sir George. Um, and that, you want to get into that and talk about that? Well, it was in part to collect information on his contribution to the film you know he does the whole soundtrack side the the side of the album is all his work his own orchestral work so right. he was one of the first people that we wanted to get an interview with after we started collecting interviews back in the early 90s late 80s um so you sought him out to talk to about that it just happened to be around 1995 when they were doing the anthology remember the mm -hmm. this is how 45. we were introduced to him we were probably the first person to interview him on this particular topic. Wow. Um, so we've saved, saved a couple of these. Do you have copies of these? These are I 45s. Don't. These are 45s? Okay. All right. Well, I'll send you both. Huh? Okay. That's wonderful. Woo! Well, <laughs> that's how I felt when I first got them, because of, uh, to find out that... John Lennon was still going at it. Oh, that was so exciting, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Remember that? The, the, oh, yeah. Uh, 
Beatlemania back in 94, 95 when they first I know, I know. I, I was teaching aerobics and I had to find a way to work that into every single aerobics <laughs> class. <laughs> oh, that was so exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you. For, uh, you know, we were doing a straightforward interview about the, um, you know, the sound, the, what's his, his song called Pepperland and the orchestral arrangements and how he worked with the crew. He really respected and liked the crew at TVC. That's the production company in London that produced the film. And um, he felt sorry for them because he knew mm -hmm. that they had a really hard assignment ahead of them to make this film when the Beatles were dead set against it being made. They, um, as, as most people know, did not like the cartoon version, which was made by the same people. Um, and they didn't like the cartoon version because it was done in a very slapdash kind of way. You know, it was one of those many, many things that were done to make money off of the Beatles without their participation. That um, was a, a brilliant idea by Al Brodax, a, a New York production uh, producer with King Features. Um, but, you know, he wasn't that careful. And he, he put in actors to do the voices that didn't sound at all like the Beatles. It was sort of a mid-Atlantic version, a half British, half American sound. And that was the biggest thing that they objected to was the way they sounded. But um, he, uh, he hired TVC, this small animation house in London, to, to do that for them. And, and they had to crank a new one out every week. So they had a lot of pressure to do it. And, and they got better. I can, you can see a real progression in the artwork over the three years that that, that series was made. Um, but when the Beatles heard that they were going to do a full-length feature, which is much, much uh, more long-lasting than a TV show, they they said, "No, you can't do the same thing." Yeah, and they weren't happy with the artists one said, anyway. "No, we're not going to do the same thing too." But Al Brodick said, "Yes, you are. You've only got 11 months. We've only, we've got it in the contract. You've mm -hmm. got to hurry up and do the same thing because that's all we can do in that amount of time." Um, I'm getting off the subject of George Martin. But <laughs> oh. When when we talked to him. It was about that, and uh, it just happened to be at the same time, just before the anthology mm -hmm. had been released in terms of uh, the news hasn't really been a release. They hadn't said much about it. It was just rumors. So, so our little interview with George went out on the ABC Newswires, which was really exciting. But what did you learn from George that was so, uh, why did you dedicate the book to him and to Lady Judy? I think um, that, that would be really interesting. To know. Well, because he taught me how to be patient. He, <laughs> he needed patience if you wanted to work with the Beatles, uh, especially Neil. I was always called him Neil, Neil Aspinall. Yeah, yeah, I was called him Neil Young. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> Neil Aspinall. <laughs> he was tough. He was not happy about anything Yellow Submarine, hmm. and he was a uh, he was a big block in the road. Yeah, uh, to to getting it done. And uh, unfortunately, that almost destroyed the piece of work to begin with. Wow. But fortunately, when you have a guy like Sir George Martin, he, he can take any crummy piece of anything <laughs> and make it look great. He this is a magician. This is a powerful, intelligent, deeply intelligent soul. He... <laughs> If you wanted to talk to him about ghosts, he'd love to talk to you about ghosts. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that uh, Sir George and others would love to talk about, but the media doesn't ask them those kind of questions, such as, you know, what about UFOs? <laughs> oh, of course. 
Of course, he said, of course, we've got them. And it's true. We finally have proven that they're there. We've not been told. They didn't want to tell us. There was a good reason why they didn't want to tell us. But uh, that's the way it got blocked for such a long period of time. Hmm. Also, we also shared a great interest in the environment. And uh, in the period of time when we were going back and forth to London in the late 90s and meeting him at Air Studios, that's when the volcano wrecked their island of Montserrat. And uh, Zoe, his wife, and Bob were able to give them their first check for that foundation that they were doing a big fundraiser for the saving of the Montserrat Island and rebuilding it and making a community center. So uh, they really bonded. And as Bob noted, his interest in the paranormal, that was something that we were surprised that he was also shared. Yes. Uh, genetically yes. genetically yeah. modified food, you talked about that an awful lot. Yep. But the main thing mm. I like to remember is how, how fond he was of the Yellow Submarine crew. He worked with them again many years after the submarine came out. Um, TVC produced uh, The Snowman, which is a very famous... Raymond Briggs cartoon that people watch every year at Christmas, yeah. um, as well as a lot of the Wind in the Willows and uh, mm -hmm. Tales of the Peter Rabbit, things like that. And he did a lot of the soundtracks for them as well. He produced the music for them. He was good friends with John Coates and George Dunning in particular, the director of the film. And as I say, he took pity on them because the Beatles didn't want to have anything to do with this production from the outset. And even though they were contractually obligated to give them four songs, they gave them three throwaway songs that they couldn't figure out what to do with anyway. And uh, the fourth song, John did write originally, but uh, Hey Bulldog. Um, and if you listen to it carefully. Great song. We, I, it's a great song, isn't it? But if you go through yeah. the lyrics, I mean, there's all kinds of suppositions about who is it about and what's it mean. But I think if you remember... Al Brodax was this brash American, cigar-chomping, Hawaiian shirts, the whole bit. And, uh, you know, just not at all something that the Beatles were embracing. Um, mm. And uh, I think that those lyrics are about him. You think you know me, but you haven't got a clue. You know, you think you're something special when you smile. Uh, mm. He was obviously irritated. He was forced to sit down and write something that right. was not his, you he know, and he had to, to push it. that out. And he did it the last minute. That that song was shoehorned into the film because they reluctantly, it took him until February, I think, to give them the film. And they'd been working, giving them that song. They'd been working on the film since August and wow. it was finished. That's why it, 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 um, it lands where it does in the film in a very strange place. And it ended up being cut out of the first American release of the film. So for the longest time, the American audience and the European mm -hmm. audience were looking at two different films and mm -hmm. not understanding why, when you got the soundtrack, why is this song on here? I've never heard this song before. I didn't see that in the movie. And it is, I think it's one of the best songs in the film. It's yeah. Really cool. Okay. So before we get going a little bit more, why don't you, Give us, give the, our podcast audience a, a brief breakdown of what they can find in the first volume of your Yellow Submarine book and then what they can find in the second volume. Okay. Well, you'll find out in the first volume who actually wrote and put together Yellow Submarine because there's a lot of controversy about that. Mm. It took me years, I mean, many years. I don't think I, I've worked on this thing for 30 some years uh, because nobody was talking about anything about it. The Beatles weren't, didn't know what, who did what and what had the importance of it. And that made a very big difference. I wish they were deeply involved in it. That would have 
would have been a lot better from the very beginning. Now, where were we? The first book is more of the oh. actual creative team. You know, the persons who wrote it, the director, the producer. We interviewed all the top notch, you know, the upper crust of the people who actually made it. The creative team, probably about 30 people. A few trace and paint artists, a few of the underlings, but mostly it was the key decision makers. Um, we first found Bob Balser, one of the co-animation directors, through Rocky and Bullwinkle. Bob was doing a special on his radio show about Rocky and Bullwinkle. And, uh-huh. I know, it's a strange connection, but well, the, the voice of Rocky, June Foray, said... June Foray. Bob was saying, I've been trying to figure out who wrote the Yellow Submarine. And she said, well, I happen to know. Uh, they sat on the Academy Awards um, committee for animated pictures together. And I happen to know Bob Balser and he, he directed Yellow Submarine. So let me connect you. So she did. And then he led to one after another. Uh, that was pretty big because it took me decades, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, to, to dig that out. And it came about only through Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah, it took, I mean, that was after years of writing to Paul McCartney, trying to get an yes. answer about right, what does this we... mean? Why is it yes. yellow? Why is it blue? <laughs> Why is it a submarine, you know? Because uh, Bob, as you could maybe infer, is a symbologist and, and a specialist in metaphysics. And, you know, he sees meaning everywhere. So um, he, that's a big part of the second book, actually, is a symbolic interpretation of what all the different colors and images mean. Um, you know, completely subjective, but still it's, it, you can, people do this with the Beatles, right? They just it can't help themselves. They're going to interpret these lyrics one way or another, whether the Beatles intended it or not, whether the artists intended it or not, you still have the right when it's a, a work of art to interpret it the way you, you want. But anyway, um, that's uh, at the beginning, you just couldn't get any answers out of anybody. And, 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 and there you know, was no one to talk to. And, and the Beatles by default, when the film came out and they liked it, they just let everybody assume that they made it. So, you know, when the Beatles are in the room, they just suck all the energy out and nobody really paid any attention to, oh, oh, you didn't do the voices, you know? Oh, you didn't do the artwork, you know? Nobody asked those kind of questions until he started collecting these interviews. So it, um, you know, that was, that was who we did in the first interview. So um, it's, it's done mostly in their words. We made it a point to do it's mostly in first person. And as Jude referred to earlier, you get some completely, completely black and white answers. You know, I did this. No, I did this. Or it went this way. No, it went that way. And, and they remember it completely yeah. differently. We, we weren't there. So we decided to just leave it in there. If, if that's the way they remember it, that's the way they remember it. And then you can sort of figure it out because the majority of the people will think, okay, that, that's the way it went. And usually the story is 90% of the people say one thing and Al Brodex says something else. <laughs> when he had his own version of how that, that movie was made, then it's, it doesn't jive with most everybody else's. And what probably most people don't know is Brodax's version of it was literally, I would say, condemned by uh, the guys that created the film. Mm-hmm. They said, wow. he, you're dead wrong about yeah. a number of things. But of course, Al Brodax, he was a tough guy, very tough guy to work with. He tried to make a deal with me to, to join mm-hmm. me into writing with him, but um, he was a little bit too... <laughs> yeah, instead he yeah. stole a lot of stuff out of our That's first correct. book they usually and steal. rewrote it into his, his voice. Yeah. But anyway, so then, as you said, uh, you know, 426 pages, we thought we were done. Yep. We'd talk to everybody, but almost as soon as it hit print, we started to hear from, hey, you missed me, and hey, 
And I thought at first that they were just going to repeat the same stories we'd already heard. We started to get a lot of repetition, but lo and behold, they started telling us things we hadn't heard before and uh, sending us pictures. You know, it was mostly the younger crew. That's who's in volume two is a, a younger set. And uh, they were a little bit more starry eyed. They're working on a Beatles production. This is so great. You know, they just got Sgt. Peppers and here we are animating it. And they were dancing and they bring in their records and, you know, smoking and going to the pub in the middle for long lunches and having the best uh, year of their life. lives. Yeah. They said, this is like something Lena and I need to get on right away. <laughs> just had the greatest time for the longest couple of months they couldn't agree on a script so there was yep. a lot of downtime for these artists you know they were being hired to work on commercials just to keep them busy and so mm -hmm. they got up to a lot of hijinks uh, played a lot of pranks on each other mm -hmm. uh, invented these incredible things just to stay busy um but you know they they to a person they all said this was just the greatest they were like a, a family a tribe of, of workers they they gelled together the fact that the movie holds together at all is a minor miracle considering all the the restrictions they had they had very little time to do it in very little money to do it with and they didn't have the cooperation of their stars so the fact that it, they got it done is a minor miracle but they did it kind of makes sense also it's another miracle so the second volume we self-published um you know it's got a lot of color photographs so it's expensive and a publisher wouldn't have done that uh and so we took the time to and, add back but it in. also but it also says a lot more than our uh, we were not allowed to say what we wanted right. to, to talk about uh in, in symbolic interpretation with the first book they right. would not allow it. They, they cut that out. Yes. So we put that in chapter, uh, the second volume of all the, uh, the more speculative interpretation. Uh, you know, what does yellow mean? And comparing beetles with an A to beetles with an E and, and the Egyptian and, cosmology. And the Egyptian beetles, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the basic difference in between the two books. It's a family. And now, why it took now, us so long. Yes, now we can see it, it is a total family. Mm-hmm. Right. Family and the elder family together. And that's how it succeeded, which tells a good story right there. Yeah. And this isn't all new. You know, he produces a weekly radio show himself for the past 30 plus years. We've written several wow. books in between on different subjects. He's an artist. Okay. So if you don't mind, how about walking us from the beginning for people that, that have no, that don't know anything about Yellow Submarine, the concept where that began and how it unfolded and emerged. And I know it, it's kind of a long um, answer, but we want everyone to understand how the idea first began and how it drast how drastically it changed as a whole host of the artists and animators and the writers and the filmmakers began to bring it to life. Well, actually the first part dealt with my seeing the film for the first time. And I was absolutely shocked. I thought the Beatles were more than geniuses. I thought these guys, whoa, how could they do this? You know, and it was just to, to think that you're actually listening to a person who is a multiple genius and, and they're giving their all to the world like that. This is, that's a totally different thing. But I wanted to know more about, well, well, do they really mean this? What do they mean by this? So, of course, we went through, or at least I went through a period of time of trying to reach them, which was totally failed. 
Um, I just sent them a lot of beautiful things, uh, but I'd, I'd like to have them back someday. Uh, so from then on, it was more or less like the Beatles actually, I th I, we thought they were responsible. And my thinking of them as that being that brilliant was, I didn't think they <laughs> were that way uh, normally, so to speak. But, but from this perspective, to see what they were saying symbolically, I realized that uh, these guys, I really need to look at much more deeply. So what's going on with them? Where do they get this information? And how do they, why do they get it out the way they do? You know, for a movie that makes you feel so good and has such lovely messages of all you need is love and all this all together now, and you know, you can dance to it and the colors, everything works together to get into your subconscious. It is a, the making of the movie was just fraught with contention from beginning to end. Um, this comes out more in volume one because it was mostly the upper echelon who were feeling that. The younger kids on the lower levels didn't really feel that. They were having too much fun. And it, they, they, the producer did a good job of filtering that so it didn't reach down to them. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, Al Brodax had the original idea and went to Brian Epstein and said, you said if the cartoon series was a success, you'd let me have a whole full-length feature. So that's how that contractually started. Um, and so... You know, they were gambling on whether the Beatles would still be together and still be popular uh, in a year. It takes Disney four years to make an animated feature length film. And they gave them one year or less than one year. You wow. know, $4 million, they had about a million dollars, which the Beatles took 200000 off the top. So they had hardly any budget and they ran out of money. You know, about uh, April or May, they completely ran out of money and the, the production almost uh, ground to a halt. Um, there was actually a strike, uh, a kidnapping. They kidnapped the film. Some of the um, Al Brodax decided to come in and say, well, you guys have to finish the film and you have to finish it now. And these artists were like, we can't just cut it like a piece of cheese. This is a creative element and we need some more money to get it finished. And he said, no, I'm going to take the film away from you. I'm going to take over your studio and I'm going to give it to somebody else. So the artists all went on strike. And a few of them snuck into the studio one night and took about two-thirds of the film away and hid them away in, in somebody's house, uh, all the corresponding pieces of artwork, so that he couldn't take the film away from them. Um, they got the union involved, and it was quite dramatic. Uh, everybody remembers this, even the younger people who weren't clear what was happening. They knew something was happening, because all of a sudden they started being paid by the Americans instead of by the, the, the TVC people. And they, were, they would look across the... The, the square on payday to see if there were somebody's coming with the carry-all bag that had all their checks in it, all the money. Uh, that went on for a couple of weeks and they finally came to some agreement and they finished the film, but it put TVC into near bankruptcy. They had to give their own money. The George Dunning and John Coates yeah, who ran TVC yeah. ended was, up putting their was, own money into it. That was shameful. Yeah. And I think that was shameful. It was. Uh, I'm going to say something I've not said um, before, but I, I think at that point, uh, the Beatles should have stepped in and helped out. They should have, and in a perfect world, they would have, but they weren't even I know, aware of what I was going on. I understand, but this, these, was, um, this, this was almost the, the, the demolition of, of TBC. Right, but nobody knew that, so you have to give them a little credit for that. Yeah. It was 68 in like May of, where were they? They coming back from India, they're working on the White Album, you know, they're busy. 
and uh, they had their and own not only busy, but John Lennon was going through his own problems with he and Cynthia were getting ready to get divorced. He right. tells you quite, you know, Philip Norman quotes him as saying he was thinking about committing suicide. Uh, He's well, getting ready to lose his son. And he, and he and Yoko weren't having an easy relationship either. And they ended up three years later not being able to keep it together. I mean, they, and the other thing is that the Beatles aren't told a lot of things. Right. They don't know a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff is kept from them. Neil is their Lena. Neil is their buffer from the hard world. Neil is the one that takes it on the shoulders because he doesn't want them to know about it. So who knows how much they knew about what was really going on. And this has always been a project that was over there for them. Yeah. Their project. And part of that was because of Magical Mystery Tour was also being produced at the same time. And they saw it a bit as a competition. Yeah. Uh, as I said, it's, it's a miracle that the film was finished and that it yeah. was together. Oh, and then there was that whole business with the script because oh. Al Brodex from the beginning was bringing in these really cartoonish scripts and they were full of American Bronxy humor. So mm. the dialogue was just wrong. And uh, so the, the TVC people went and got Roger McGough, who was a poet laureate and a friend of the Beatles and Liverpudlian. And he wrote a lot of the dialogue that Eric Siegel had written the final script that uh, could be called a script. Um, you know, that he was a professor of classics at Yale at the time, and Al Brodax found him and brought him in for a couple of weeks at the end of the summer. And he wrote, um, I think he's responsible for giving it that hero's journey sort of overall structure yeah. of, uh, you know, a Ulysses kind of thing where you have a journey that the hero leaves his homeland, goes off to find help, has a series of adventures coming back, and then brings some kind of gift home to his homeland. That's a, <clears throat> a classical uh, hero's journey story that you've got in Star Wars, you've got it in Lord of the Rings, Wizard of Oz, they all follow that pattern, as does Yellow Submarine. So that's another reason that it still resonates with us today. You've got that pattern that everybody, you know, they can understand. And I think Eric Siegel was partially responsible for giving that structure. Um, but Roger McGough is the one who yes. put in all those in-jokes and the funniness and the puns and the liver humor, and the voice actors too. They also put their foots mm -hmm. down because their collective foots, um, because Al Brodex was pushing them to make it more American and, and they were, no, we're gonna make this authentic as possible. So much so that most people assumed it was the Beatles. Yeah, Why? yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I have to agree with you um, on what you're saying, Bob, about the Beatles being genius. I mean, think about how hard we work, the, you know, all of us to write books. And we think when we get a book put out, whew, okay. And in 1964 and 1965, at the height of Beatlemania, John puts out two books of, a, of prose and poetry, along with living through a house renovation, which almost does me in, do anything to me, but make me live through house renovation, and tours the world, tours the UK, tours the US, is on numerous television shows and interviews and oh my gosh, how could you be more genius than that? And they write over 300 songs that are in no way alike. They're all completely different, like a snowflake. I mean, you know, genius guys. I, I totally agree with you. You're like we say, most people, when they're making a movie, that's all they're doing. Yeah. Yes. They were writing yes. songs. They were going to India. They were... Yeah, it, it is just, it's unbelievable. Well, 
I want everyone to see this cover because, uh, and I've got glare on it. Let me see if I can get it right down. There we go. It is so artistic. And the book is full of cover illustra- uh, color illustrations. I mean, I just to get one photo end up paying anywhere between uh, $75 to $100 for each picture that's in the book. So I try to always budget at least $1,500 just for photographs. You guys, you have photographs on every page. And even your um, signature in the book is a work of art. I mean, definitely art is the strong part of this book. So tell us about the process of getting the photos, getting this, the cover art. It, it just is a beautiful book. Well, fortunately, we got the photos from Heinz Edelman. Um, he designed the he first did, cover, too. He did, we were very fortunate that he gave us, uh, actually. Yeah, a, he gave us three. That was the third one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Three so to choose from. That's really what made So we had that one difference. left over for volume two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, getting commissions for photographs, that's something that most authors well, don't think about. That's why most books don't have illustrations. It yes, is a pain right. in the butt. Yeah. So fortunately, we had a lot of these younger people had cameras with them in the studio. That's something that's missing out of volume one. We couldn't find any live pictures of them in the studio, but some of them did. So we have a lot of pictures from them and that those were free. Um, I, I just discarded the ones that cost too much. You know, there were a lot of pictures I would like to have used or that were licensed. You know, you'll if you look carefully, there's nothing in there from the film that's not already in the public domain that's been released for marketing and that's because we couldn't get the permission from the Beatles to do it they don't want to <laughs> sanction any project that's not theirs mm-hmm. you know that they don't have total control over so yeah, someday we never, we never they're going to do a book that. right they're going to do a book on yellow submarine someday I hope they do but in any case um, mm-hmm. it was important to print in color it was really important and it takes a higher quality of paper so mm-hmm. it's more expensive it's thicker and uh, I don't think any publication house would have done it. That's why we, we went the self-publication. We, we do have a black and white version okay. that we made available on Amazon for anybody who wants to read it, who just, uh, you know, needs to save a few bucks. It's, it's not worth it, <laughs> if you ask me, because you need to have the color for this colorful. This film is, you know, intensely colorful. They, they deliberately put in more color than usual to give you that saturated psychedelic kind of feeling it's you know more than your consciousness can even absorb because it's going by so fast there's a lot of detail in there that's why it feels trippy that's why people assume it was made on drugs which is couldn't be further from the truth but that was intentional yeah it was intentional by heinz edelman brilliant man there were there were a number of brilliant brilliant the the designer heinz edelman is the designer yeah and certainly uh and and in book one we had the Worked with the idea of uh, what was the wonderful guy that always wanted to say that he created. Oh, Peter Max. Peter Max. Oh yes. Oh this, yes. This guy. <laughs> <laughs> what a character! What a character! I mean, you know, uh, he's lucky he's not in jail <laughs> because of the number of things that. But I think people are, are sensitive to him and his illness at this particular time. Yeah, he's got Alzheimer's now, so and I try to be a little kinder in our critique of him, but he has lied so much about Yellow Submarine. It's, it's something we, we yeah. feel compelled to correct every time we have an opportunity to. 
when Bob interviewed him, he said, no, I never take credit for Yellow Submarine. If people assume that I did it because it looks like my artwork, but I always just smile and nod my head because I don't want to use up all my interview time correcting them. Oh, what? And yet we'll get these other interviews that he does with other people. Well, yeah, I called up John Lennon and Al Brodax tried to get me to do it. And I was just too busy at the time and they weren't going to pay me enough. And I sent them all the information that they needed and they stole all my, you know, he says all this, it's my design. It's not his design. He was sort of a poor man's imitation. And Heinz Edelman was so hurt by that. He's like, this is the world's most successful commercial artist. Why does he have to take, the credit for this tiny little film that he had nothing to do with. It's people, I'm telling you, see, listen to me. (laughs) People, stay away. Well, this, the cover, um, I love this cover. And it looks to me like the monster is getting ready to swallow the yellow submarine and the beetles along with it. Tell tell us about the cover. Who do you think the monster is? Um... I, well, if you ask me, it's the machine. It's the, it's the Beatles machine that, you know, had them work so many hours that they couldn't work and push them and push them and push them and push them and yeah. made them into moles of people they weren't. That would, that would be my guess. Well, uh, that, let me see. Oh, wait. You're trying to look at that? Yes, yeah, it's, it's hard to see backwards. Uh, these obviously are all the monsters of Heinz Edelman. And what he's pointing out, for, by and large, this, this long tongue going out in this direction here, this in, is, was his respect, disrespect, in my opinion, or his opinion, uh, was that, that um, the Beatles... Oh, what was that, Laura? You were trying to say it represented Al Brodex. Yes, it did. Well, it did represent he was, because he was the monster. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Heinz Edelman loved monsters. He was drawing monsters yeah. before he was hired for the film. It was something he liked. It's just part of his psyche. And we would get these New Year's Eve cards from him every year that always had monsters in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, he was not well. You know, the, the, the film took an awful lot out of him. Right. And uh, he quit. And over and over and over again, he kept quitting and leaving the production and they'd have to go on in great panic to find him again. Um, he was hired for a couple of months to do a general Two design. Months. Yeah. Two months, and he stayed for the whole thing. And he would, he worked harder than anybody else. He would stay overnight while they all went home and creep around the studio and correct everybody's artwork. <laughs> he was a perfectionist, you know, he was a professor and he'd never done animation before or since, I don't think. Um, and it, his, his design was so unusual. It took them a long time to, to turn it into a three-dimensional aspect that you need to do for animation. So um, I think that's part of what you're seeing here. He was so frustrated by the whole experience that when he was done, he didn't want to have anything to do with the Beatles ever again. He mm-hmm. was, every time he did a showing, that's all anybody wanted to ask him about was what was it like to work with the Beatles and the Beatles. Yeah, well, yeah. It is with anybody with who's touched the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So when Bob came to interview him 20, 30 years later, he, he was, no, I don't do interviews about Yellow Submarine. It took him a long time to convince him to do it. Um, he went on, he created a pseudonym for himself after the film called, it, it was French, Henri l'Esclave, which means Henry the Slave. Oh! And if you would turn well, he, to page 196, did you notice this? This is the only picture we give a, a two-fold to. 
This is a picture he drew at the very end for a magazine he illustrated for called Twen in, in, Germ in Germany. If you look really closely, you can see what's happening here is the pepper people are eating the meanies and the beetles. <laughs> There's Ringo's head is on a plate right over here. And uh, this was what he called an alternative ending. This is how he felt at the end of the film, you know, just the whole thing. Everything goes to... <laughs> so he was... Uh, uh, well, it took him a long time to reconcile that part of his life to his career, and I give truth. great credit to Dr. Bob for doing that. He eventually allowed him to see how much love he created and how much fan appreciation there was. So when they digitized the film the first time in 1999, and they did a big showing in Liverpool, and they had Yellow Submarine Day, and 350,000 people came out in the streets all wearing yellow caps and because of this man's persistence and multiple faxes, because that was back in the day before internet, uh, to Apple and Neil Aspinall, you've got to give these guys the credit they deserve. You have squashed them for so long. Not just squashed their identity, but literally come to their offices and taken their artwork away from them. Really, yes. Strange, right. you know, Apple can be very litigious. Um, they did. They rolled out the red carpet for them, and, and Heinz Edelman was up there at the top of the theater, and he got to do his, his standing ovation, and everybody got the credit they deserve. I give them great credit for doing that. And I think that was his turning point. He finally. Well, it's a work of love, what you've done. I mean, you've been dedicated to this as a life's work. And it, although I know you do numerous other things, important things on the side, this has been a great, great contribution mm -hmm. to the Beatles world. So we really, really appreciate it. And I have to say, I, I love the book, but that I, one of my favorite chapters is the one that's called Our Friends Are All Aboard, where you interview all of the people that were doing the work and you run head on into what I run into all the time, where someone will say, this is the way it happened. And then another person will say, it didn't happen like that at all this is the way it happened. So give us some of the examples of what the artists and illustrators and so forth told you about the making of the film. Well, I can what? think of at least four people who invented the term blue meanies. Um, I, I did that, and, that was my idea. No, and, I did that, yeah, that was my idea. And what it meant. Yeah, are you bluish? Sima also remembers writing that, that line. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, the link to, are you Jewish? Yeah, right. Yes. Um, but yeah, Millicent McMillan was one of the assistants for Heinz Edelman, and, and she remembers very distinctly with Heinz, he wanted to make them the red meanies, and then it was the purple meanies, and she suggested purple, I think, and he said purple was a hard color to work with, and that's how they came up with the blue meanies, and she remembers saying that to him, blue meanies, and he said, hmm, yes, blue meanies, that would be good, but at least four other people remember something else, that that's how blue meanies were named, blue meanies. Uh, I remember in volume two, Cam Ford was very helpful to us with a great memory, lots of photos, wonderful stories. And he had his girlfriend come over from Australia. Uh, they were both Australians and she ended up working on the production too. They got engaged halfway through and uh, married soon after. Um, they went out to all these different restaurants in Soho. You know, the film was made in Soho, which was part of Swinging London. Uh, it was a real... Um, it really shaped the film because at that time period, it was a very strange place. 
uh, Soho was the, the home of the uh, adult film industry and there were a lot of strip clubs and uh, a lot of um, sleazy bars and people sleeping off their drunk in the streets and mm -hmm. you know dancers scurrying around half naked and uh, and for some reason all the animation and film editing houses are in the same area too so uh, Paul McCartney's coming down to work on Magical Mystery Tour just a, a block away from where Yellow Submarine is being produced and uh, anyway it's also full of lots of restaurants from all around the world so Cam Ford and Diana Ford would would eat all over the place and have these wonderful experiences whereas someone like Norm Drew who came in in January from Toronto and was living in a, a one-room apartment uh, eating biscuits and coffee, you know, for, for dinner because he couldn't afford it. So they had completely different experiences about how they in, enjoyed their, their time. Um, but uh, yeah, that the, 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 the biggest differences between Al Brodax's version of the stories and, and everybody else's, uh, more so than in the different experiences that they had. It's, it's, it's the way he remembers it is, is all very much he did everything. <laughs> yeah. And if you put Al and Peter Max and Heinz Edelman together, what a different version you would get of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. History is slippery. One yeah. of my favorite quotes. Yeah. That's a good one. Well, this particular film cost um, Heinz his life. Well, it put a good toll on it. Yes, anyway. it did. It put great stress on him. And if you read one particular chapter in the book, you will find that he almost died at a certain point. He had a serious bout of food poisoning. Yeah, he was very sick. And um, Wow. Is, well, yeah, that was just... But he almost lost his eyesight, too. It was, it was When we visited him on the, the last time we got a chance to see him, just about, uh, he looked pretty wiped out from yeah. that standpoint. It's but, his, uh, The Misfits, you know, Clark Gable did that show with Marilyn Monroe, The Misfits, and they say it's what killed Clark Gable, that it took a, t a huge toll on him. So yeah. this is his Misfits. But then you have the message that we're left with. Every one of us has all we need. You know, this is a, a great film that we all live in a yellow submarine. We're all in this together. You know, we all our friends are all aboard and and if you take into account some of the interpretations, we've got the yellow, which is a higher mind. It's a symbol of the sun, you know, divinity. And then you've got the submarine, which is below submarine, marine, water, water emotions. So you've got the two different things come together in the one item, which is telling you to, it's all in the mind, you know, turn off your mind, relax, float downstream. And... You know, there's always going to be newer and bluer meanies out there. You can't let your guard down. But if we all go out singing all together now, you know, it, that's what this, you know. And the other thing that we like to point out about this movie is the enemies aren't killed. The blue meanies are transformed into friends. Mm -hmm. That's the most important part. Yeah. Right. Through the magic of this music and this power of love. The love, the tower that they build, yeah. all you need is love. That's it actually embraces them. They lift it up. It's, it's all part of the, you know, that's what I think the message of the Yellow Submarine movie. I know we need to wind things up because we're getting close on our time, but I have to tell you one quick story. I lived in Morrisville, Pennsylvania, which was about 35 miles out of New York City during 9-11. 
And of course, no planes flew overhead for weeks afterwards. It was deadly silent. Instead of planes flying overhead, it was, there was just quiet. The whole town, the pilot of the second plane lived one street over from where I lived. And the um, funeral was in Morrisville. It was a very, very grim time. And I'm out in the backyard painting the deck and two doors down, there's some children that live. And of course, you know, you remember this is in the 2000s. This isn't Beatles era. And there's some children playing in the backyard. And suddenly I hear them all singing, we all live in the yellow submarine. And I thought, even in tragedy, the Beatles lift us up. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a beautiful moment, really. That's yeah. what you, that, that, that refrain is known all over the world. You know, people who don't speak English will see my yeah. ears and start singing that. They, everybody knows that song. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Yellow Submarine then is higher consciousness. As we move into higher consciousness, we become one. As we meditate, as we pray, as we serve others, we do become one. And that's obviously what the world needs today. And the Beatles obviously have been on top of it from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I well, think we've got to wrap it up, don't we, dude? We do. And we really appreciate you guys being here so much. And as our, our to leave people with, with one reminder, tell them where they can get your book what your website is and where they can follow you on social media. Okay. Well, the, there are several ways to buy the book. I would say direct sale from us, yellowsubmarinebooktalk.com is the best way because you'll get bonus prizes. Like anybody who listens to this and mentions they heard it, will give you a, a yellow submarine face mask. Nice. We also have other bonus prizes that are available there. Um, but if you are a big supporter of bookstores or your local library, you can ask them to order it for you. We are distributed through Ingram. So that's something I love to announce because I love to support independent booksellers as well. Um, it is available on Amazon and there's a, a cheaper black and white version there. Um, but the best way is from us because then you'll get the autograph personalization and some bonus prizes as well. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all versions. Yeah, you'll get one of those, a picture of Ringo Starr. That's right. Um, nice. Our handles are all versions of Yellow Submarine Book something, you know, Yellow Sub Book 2 on Twitter. But Yellow Submarine Book is where we are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, so, yeah, that's where hey, we are. Tell people about your event that's coming up. Oh, we're going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this Saturday, May 21st. We'll be there to give a, a gallery talk. Dr. Bob's talking about his Woodstock bus. That's the light bus, actually. Mm -hmm. now, um, that'll be leaving. It's been up there almost a year. And we'll wow. be moving somewhere else in uh, a couple of months or something like that. But this uh, is basically... This is a diecast of the Woodstock bus. Wow. That he painted back in 1968... A big one, a little one. <laughs> Woo! Uh, it went up to what wow. was photographed by the Associated Press, the Rolling Stone, Life Magazine. And so you'll see it a lot with two people sitting on top of it. You'll see that picture a lot in magazine articles and retrospectives about Woodstock. It's, it's used over and over again. So um, wow, it's now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum. We're going up to give a gallery talk about it. And interpret right. This weekend, this coming weekend. Right. That is great. Who's listening, come, come visit us on Saturday. 
Well, thank you guys very, very much. We enjoyed having you here and it was a colorful hour. We'll say that for sure. <laughs> we, we're all colorful today. <laughs> well, that's right. You guys do a great show. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you guys very much. We're just, it very is our pleasure to host a show. Again with you. And now I'm going to have, she said, she said, stuck in my head again for another week. <laughs> thank you. That's a great song, too. Yeah, they're all good songs. I could never pick a favorite. I know. Aren't there other things we want to send them? Yeah, we're going to send you some other goodies, too. Oh, wonderful. That is great. Well, we, um, we will be looking for good news from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and, and we all share a common agent. I think that, that you work with Nicole, Nicole yes. at 910 Public Relations, and so do Lena and I, so we'll be looking for good news from the Rock Hall. Thank you very, very much, and guys, go out and get a copy of It's All in the Mind. This is volume two. In fact, get both copies, and uh, yes. we, will, we will see you, hopefully, at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans in August. All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. See ya. Yeah. So we've got a couple of more shows coming up in the next week. It is going to be super busy for Jude and I. Now, uh, on Tuesday, we are chatting with author Philip Kirkland. He is the ultimate Lennon family genealogist. He wrote an incredible book titled All Roads Lead to Lennon. It's a collection of stories about John's family tree, his ancestors, and the places in and around Liverpool that influenced John's life. So Philip is releasing a second book, and it is um, titled The Rise and Fall of Father Lennon. I wanted to make sure I get it right. This is John's uncle. He was the Reverend Father... William George Lennon, who was a Catholic priest in the Liverpool area in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And he was um, very, um, very colorful character that we're finding out. Uh, Jude's been reading the book. So I think it'll be a very great show um, for you to tune in and listen. And at then the week after, we have a special guest all the way from New Orleans, Bruce Spizer. Uh, since the shutdown, Bruce has released three new books in his definitive Beatles album series. And we'll be talking to him about the latest and greatest volumes. So stay tuned for much more on She Said, She Said. Until then, here's to Food for Thought, Food for the Soul, Food for the love of rock and roll. Ta-ra and shine on.